Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. On January 8th, 1956, Nate Sate landed his little single-engine Cessna plane on uh, a beach they had dubbed um, Palm Beach on the Karari River in Ecuador. His companions that were with him was um, Peter Fleming, um, Roger Yodarian, um, Jim Elliott, and Ed McCulley were at the, what they hoped was the beginning of a journey that they had begun six years previously to reach the Alka Indian tribe. Uh, they were an unreached people group in Ecuador, uh, known for being pretty brutal. And they had spent six years praying, planning, dropping things from the air, doing everything they could to, to reach out to them. And they were hoping for the first time to actually get together and meet with them. And they landed on the beach, and they were in continued communication via radio with uh, their wives. Four of them were married. And, um, and their partner, ministry partners back at a place called Shell Mara, which was uh, their base station. At a 4.30, the radio went silent. And there was no longer any communication. And um, they continued through the night, the wives waiting. The next morning, a plane flew over the area, and they, f- they could see Nate's plane all torn up, laying on the ground. Um, the, some local um, natives from the Kishua tribe took a, um, a canoes up and then found the bodies of the five. And uh, they had been speared by the very tribe that they were seeking to reach. Of those five, Jim Elliott's the most well-known. And I don't know if you've heard of him or not. I hope so. Uh, Mostly because his widow, Elizabeth Elliott, has written extensively, not only about his life, but in in all the things that that flowed out of his life. There's two books in particular, Through Gates of Splendor, which is that story. If you've not read it, I commend it to you. There's probably not a better missionary story out there. And then the second book is called um, Shadow of the Almighty, and it's a journey through Jim's life based out of his journals. And um, he was a very dedicated young man. He died in his, he was martyred for his faith in Christ, seeking to reach a, the, the um, Alcas, it was actually, it's actually a slang term, uh, derogatory, they found out later, and they prefer to go by the name Warani, and that's what they go by now. Um, And if you read through Jim's journals, you see a man who is devoted to the cause of Christ. And, and it's, it's very inspiring. You're just kind of like, okay, I want to get saved all over again and start all over by the time you get reading through it. But he, um, he said something early on when he was in college. And um, I hope this just kind of burns into your brain. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And it was the promise of eternity that sucked up his life. And the idea that everything was for Christ and that Christ was at the end of that story made everything in between the now and the then, it gave it purpose and focus and angle. Christopher Watkins in his book on uh, biblical theory um, says that promises are the scaffolding that holds the 
biblical story together. And I think it's a real accurate um, statement. If you read in Genesis, 1, uh, Genesis 3, it starts out with the promise that there was going to be somebody coming who's going to crush the serpent's head. And then in Genesis 6 through 9, we have Noah and the ark and God's promise of a rainbow that he would no longer destroy the world through flood. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, pulls him out of Ur, and says, I'm going to promise you to make you a, your name great. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless all the nations before, through you. The promises continue in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. The, the first early in, indicators and hints that there's a promise of a new king that's coming, a king that whose ring, kingdom would never stop, whose reign would be over the whole universe through the Davidic line begins to show up. And then in the Psalms and in the prophets, we see a promises of a Messiah, somebody who would actually give his blood for us and who would sacrifice himself to have a people who were his own, and that that king and that Messiah begin to blend together. And of course, we get to the Gospels, and we get to Jesus, and he is the fulfillment of all these promises. And not only does he fulfill them all, he adds a whole bunch more to them. So he comes and he says, if you follow me, I'm going to give you abundant life. If you follow me, you're going to live forever. And it's that promise of eternity that binds this whole project together. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are most men to be pitied. If all we see is Jesus just to make our lives better, why bother? That's Paul's point. Why bother? We're, we're foolish if we don't grasp eternity. And so the invitation that he has before us right now is to see our lives from his, understand, from his viewpoint. Because God is looking at the end of the age and he's looking at this way at us and he sees where we are and what, it, what he's calling us to. And it's all about these promises, this promise of eternity that's in front of us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. The book of Hebrews is written to a church that's under stress. They've been through persecution. They have been, they have been deprived of resources. They've had things stolen from them. Uh, it looks like they're about ready to toss in the towel. They're about ready to give up. And so the writer of the Hebrews is trying to buck them up. He's trying to encourage their hearts to, to keep going. And he does it by exalting Christ. He says, this is, he's a, a better Messiah with better promises, better sacrifices. He's a better God. He's better than anything that the Old Testament ever promised. In chapter 11, after he's built this case for Jesus, he goes through and he lists a whole bunch of these Old Testament saints who have trusted in the promises of God. They've looked at the promises and said, it's worth giving my life to. And he begins in chapter 1, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, for faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, I look at a promise that God has made and I said, I'm going to, put my, I'm going to bank on it. Because that's what faith really is. It's looking at the promise of God and, and trusting it even though we haven't seen it fulfilled yet. Believing that he's going to come through on what he's promised that he's going to do. So then he starts going through, he goes, talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah. Then he gets to the Fab Four. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. And it, it, everything just slows down because when... In the Old Testament, when God is revealing himself, one of, one of his names, if you will, his nicknames, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is their God. 
And he goes through and he starts talking about their story and how they trusted him. Abraham went out to a place that he had never been to. There's no Google Maps. There's nothing. He's never seen the place, never heard of the place. Launches out on this 500-plus mile trip to nowhere. It says in verse 10 that, 9 and 10 that uh, they lived as aliens and strangers because they were not looking for that city. They were not looking for that land. The promised land wasn't his promised land. And he was beginning to see that. Then he goes through and talks a little bit about Sarah and how she believed God for, to have a child when she couldn't. They've laid out, he's laid out all these promises, and then he says this, and starting in verse 13, he says, all these died in faith without having seen the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. If they'd been thinking that country from which they went out, they would have an opportunity to return thither. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. Jesus says, the writer says, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, so we'll say the writer. The writer says that all these died in faith without receiving the promises. They made it all the way to the end of their life and didn't throw in the towel. Because the promise held them through. I, I, I guarantee you, as you get older, it's easy to kind of want to throttle back. I've seen it too often. I, I feel that pull as I get up there. I'm in my early 60s now. And you've been through it all. You've done it all. You've seen it all. And there's a temptation to pull back. Most of the guys that have fallen over the years usually fall when they're older. They've, they feel like they've arrived or whatever. These died in faith. They were still believing. They were still holding on to the promises even though they hadn't, been, hadn't experienced them yet. It says they saw them and they welcomed them from a distance. They confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. It's interesting. If you read through the Genesis account, because the, all these stories are in the book of Genesis, you don't see a whole lot of heaven mentioned in it. There's not much there. There's, a little, there's some little hints. Obviously, with the, the sacrifice of the almost sacrifice of uh, Isaac in chapter 22, uh, when he says that God will provide the sacrifice. And ch in chapter 23, Sarah has died, and, and Abraham's trying to buy a tomb for her, and he says, I live as, we're aliens and strangers in this land. The kicker is, is he's in the promised land when he says he's an alien. He's in the land that God had told him he was going to give him, but he, but he was still an alien and a stranger in that land. He, had, he, he accepted the idea that he was a transient, that this was not his home, and that the promised land was here, but it wasn't it, because there's something far better coming. And he clinged to that promise. There's an interesting little tidbit in John 8. Jesus is talking to the, or the, the Pharisees, and, you know, of course, they're not real excited about him, and he says, they accuse him of having a demon and where they had Abraham as their father. And Jesus throws out this little nugget and he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. 
And they look at him and say, you're not even 50 years old. <laughs> and you've seen Abraham? And I can picture them. I, I get it. You look at him and go. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. I, there, there had to be some interactions because there's a lot of little interactions between God and Abraham all through his story, through Isaac and Jacob. And somewhere in the line, they had some powwows. And God showed them some things. We don't get to see it. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that there's something's happened, that Jesus says something's happened. Abraham had a glimpse of what was coming, and it was enough to sustain him when all hell broke loose in his life. He believed that all the pains and the sorrows, the frustrations, the joys, the happinesses were going to get sucked up into this eternal thing, and that eventually it would all be worth it, that it was going to be worth it. Therefore, he said, I don't, this is not my home. Even though I'm living in what God promised me, it's not my home. He says, those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. And if they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, they, they could have gone back. The, the word for country of their own, it's one word in Greek, and it's pader. And it, it comes from the root word for father, pater. It's, so it's a paterid, paterid. And it has the idea of fatherland, home country, where you're from. So when he says they were seeking a country of their own, they were seeking their fatherland. They were in the promised land, but they were seeking their fatherland. They knew that this was not their destination, and it wasn't about this life, ultimately. But so he says, so as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a heavenly city for them. The idea behind desire is there's a passionate, it's an active sense. It's not passive. There's an active seeking to obtain but even more importantly, it's an, in, the, in the Greek verbal system, it's an imperfect present tense verb. I'm going to geek out on you for a second. So there's a perfect, sense, perfect tense means it's perfect. It's completed. So you get saved, that's perfect. You're not going to get more saveder. It's impossible, right? It's, it's in the perfect tense. You have been saved. It's... It is a, a done deal. If it's imperfect, it hasn't been completed yet. That desire has not been satisfied. Not only that, it's present tense, it means it's ongoing. It never was satisfied. They never got to a place and went, ah, I'm here, I've arrived. They sought and desired of their fatherland. They were looking for the country that was yet to come, and they'd never stopped desiring. They were never satisfied with the life they lived. It, was, it became a dominant theme in them. It's funny, at the end of Genesis in chapter 47, uh, Jacob, um, Joseph brings Jacob and his crew to meet Pharaoh for the first time, and Pharaoh looks at him and says, hey, how old are you? And uh, Jacob says, my, uh, my life has been, my years have been few and bitter. 
Uh, he's 130 years old. Not bad, not bad. He's doing pretty good, you know. But he says they've been bitter. It's just, he looks at his life and goes, it just isn't what I had imagined, maybe hoped for. But there's a better country coming, and I can't wait. And God had given him enough pictures. You realize the advantage we have? We can look at the book. They didn't have the book. They didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't have Jesus walking around going, hey, this is what's coming. We can look at the book and go, this is where we're headed. It's the best stuff on earth. I've, I've known this passage for a long time. It's one of my favorite texts. And it's funny, you, you get familiar with something, you don't really think about things. And the last sentence I struggled with um, says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. And uh, the problem is the first word is therefore. It's the word dio, and it, it means therefore or for this reason. And the implication is that everything that the writer has said before is why what come ne- comes next happens. And it comes across as kind of a negative. It says God is not ashamed to be called their God. The implication is that he could be ashamed. He could have said, God is really pleased to be their God, or God loves to be their God. But no, he says, God is not ashamed to be their God. He's not excited, you know, he's, he's glad, but he's not ashamed of it. I've got probably every good commentary in the English language on Hebrews. And um, I've looked at them on this passage, and they sort of skated it. So I'm going to give you my best shot on this. Um, this word is used one other time in Hebrews. And if you go back to, if you go back to chapter 2, it's talking about Jesus. And um, no shocker. Uh, start, it's hard to break into the middle of a, a section, but uh, verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom all, all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim their name, your name in, to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And he goes on. He says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Why? Because the Father has sanctified us. We're one of his kin now. He identifies with us, and he's glad to identify with us, and he's glad that we identify with him. In fact, it says, if you read that carefully, it says that he's with us. When we're praising the Father, Jesus is in here with his arms lifted too. He's worshiping in the midst of the congregation. While we worship him, and you know, it gets triune God, it gets kind of weird, but... The writer of the, Old Test- the writer of the Hebrews is an Old Testament guy. It's obvious. If you read through it, there's tons of, pas- of, re- of uh, quotes from the Old Testament, allusions to the Old Testament. And if you look at the Old Testament, kind of big picture, 30,000-foot elevation level, in return, in concerning how God views Israel, there's two things that come across. God is passionately in love with Israel. He talks in the prophets about his heart is turned over for them. He calls them his son. He calls them his daughter. He calls them his bride. He calls them his children. He's their king and they're his subjects. All these analogies. So he's passionately in love with Israel and he's also extremely disappointed and very angry over their tendency to be a whore after every other idol 
that surrounded them and every other false god. And the prophets address this issue ad nauseum almost. It's, it's a continual barrage of, I love you, I've called you, and you're going after everybody else but me. I'm, I'm finishing up reading the prophets, uh, almost done in, just in my daily Bible reading. And one thing that's occurred to me that I had never noticed before. Um, so, so obviously the prophetic books are primarily aimed at Israel and Judah, but there are significant sections of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the books of Jonah, Nahum, Obadiah are written to the surrounding nations. And the prophets say a lot of similar things to both groups, to both Israel, Judah, and with the surrounding nations. You're wicked, you're rebellious, you're, in particular with the, the surrounding nations, you have mistreated my people, you've mistreated Israel. But there's one thing he really says to Israel that he says to nobody else. And he says, you have profaned my name. Read Ezekiel 24. God says, I'm moving for the sake of my name. I think it's like 12 times in that passage. I'm going to save you, not because you're so great, but because my name has been sullied. You have drug it through the mud. You have sullied my name among the nations. They're supposed to look at you and go, what an awesome and great God you are. Instead, they look at you and go, you don't even care about him. You don't love him. You don't give your life to him. Let's go back to Hebrews. It says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. It's interesting. The word for shame here has the idea of um, bad feelings. You know, I'm ashamed because I did X, Y, and Z. But I think the, the idea that's most appropriate uh, that connects with this word is the idea that there's a loss of status. And God says he is not ashamed, he has not lost status because of their faith. The implication is that he could lose status. There's a warning in this for us. We need to be careful here. We have to realize that this life we have is, is the only one we got. There's no do-overs. You're not going to be able to get to the end of it and go, well, you know, I think I could like to replay that round. It's impossible, right? You die once and then you face Jesus. This is not an issue of salvation. It's not an issue of his love for us. His death on the cross, he's proven his affection and his love. But remember in Israel, he can love them and be angry at the same time? There's a warning for us that the calling of God on our hearts is to look at the end and order our lives accordingly. And if we don't, you're going to miss it. One of the things I find interesting is to read how the disciples who were with Jesus wrote their letters. So you got Peter and John and James kind of. Um, they walk with Jesus, they're around him, so they heard all of his stuff, and then they also get filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're, they're divinely inspired to write. So they got these two interesting intermixes coming together where they heard Jesus and they watched Jesus, and that's why their letters are a little bit unique. John, in the gospel, his first letter says something in chapter 2, verse 28, that's really interesting. He says, now little children abide in him. 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away in shame at his coming. The implication is, is that when Jesus shows up, we're going to go, oh, crap. What did I do with my life? This will keep you from being stupid. You know, it will keep you from being stupid. It's powerful to realize that I am going to stand before the Son of God. I'm in heaven. It's not an issue of salvation. It's not an issue of his love for me. But he is going to assess my life and your life. It will be assessed. He's going to look at it and go, okay, I have gifted you. I've called you. I've, I've blessed you. I've, all this stuff. I've saved you. Where am I in this mix? We were at a conference a long time ago in California. And Carol, um, John Wimber was the main guy, and he um, was founder of the vineyard, if you didn't know. But anyway, he stops. He says, my wife has a word, and he brought Carol out, and she only talked for a few minutes. And um, there's, I've never, this is like 40 years ago, and it stuck with me. And she says, you know, we're really good at getting out of the Christian life what we want. The Lord is asking, when is he going to get out of it what he wants? You know, and I think that word still stands true. You know, if you look at the, the Christian book market, you can tell there's a lot about how to make my life better. <laughs> but it's not really about that, is it? That's part of it. I mean, he, gets, he promises abundance and life and all this stuff along the way, but we've got to realize that all that stuff comes along the way. If we view our, our life simply as Jesus making my life better, you're going to get to heaven and go, huh, Because Paul, in both 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 4, promises that he's going to assess the life we lived. Do you realize the grace this is? He, you get to know this ahead of time. I get to know this ahead of time. I can make decisions now that are going to impact the rest of my life and will impact my future. There is some continuity between what our lives are like now and what the experience of heaven is going to be like when we get there. Don't know for sure how it pans out. There's lots of ideas and theories. God doesn't give us a whole lot of details. Jonathan Edwards probably spent the most on this effort, and, and his understanding is, is that it's increased capacities to worship. So Fred is standing there, and he's got 80% capacity, and Julie's next to him, and she's got 150%. The, the kicker is, is that Fred doesn't know Julie's got 150, and Julie doesn't know he's got 80 because there's no sin and no jealousy, and everybody's happy. But there's a sense in which there's, there is some reward for a life lived Godward. Not just, Jesus, make my life Fix my feelings. Fill me with love and warmth. That's important. I'm not knocking that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's going to be, I gave you all this, you know, where'd you go with it? So he's prepared a city for them. He says, therefore, because these guys looked to the end of their life and they said, this is better than now, He's not ashamed to be called their God. He likes being heaven. The only people that can profane the name of God are those that bear his name. Non-Christians can't 
shame the name of God. They can mock him. They can laugh at him. They can ignore him. They can do all this stuff. But they don't bear the name of Christ. So they can't bring shame on the name of Christ. If we know Jesus, that potential exists in our lives. And it's happened a lot. And thanks to social media, everybody knows it. Right? Right. So it's, this is, there's a little bit of fearfulness in here. Yeah, there should be. But more than that, I hope you see it as grace and love. Because God says, you know what? If you go this route, you're going to be blessed. And I'm giving you an opportunity now so that you don't find out when you get there that you're on, you didn't live it out right. It's huge. This is everything. You miss this. You miss everything. Eternity is everything. Like Paul said, if, if, Jesus, if we have followed Jesus in this life only, we are mo- men most to be pitied. We have screwed up. If it's just about fixing us, we have screwed up. Rather, it's being a part of his kingdom plan, like Tim was talking about. Giving. It's like, man, we get a part of what God's doing around the globe. That's awesome. That's awesome. The Jim Elliott story I shared at the beginning, their wives went back in and won the tribe that killed their husbands. Their wives went back. We were at a concert a number of years ago in South Carolina, probably 20 years ago. Stephen Curtis Chapman was touring, and uh, he brought out Steve Saint, Nate Saint's son, the son of the pilot. And he brought out the tribesmen that killed his dad. Stuck a spear for him. They prayed together, they hugged. They've been touring together, sharing this story. Because he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So nuts and bolts. How do we do this? How do we get from where we're at, where I'm sort of focused on my little planet, Two, I can get a bigger picture of the whole thing. It's helpful to start with to go through your house, your home, or whatever, and realize that it's all going to be toast. Just to walk through it, think about it. Every once in a while, go, I have a big library. I love books. And I, I look at it and go, God, can I take it with me? You know? <laughs> I hope he has a really big one when we get to heaven. You know? <laughs> Probably won't need it, but this will be cool. You know? But it's, it's going to be gone. Everything, that house you're excited about, the car you love, the pets, the, the clothes, whatever it is that flips your switch, torques your nut, it's all going to be gone. You need to remember that. We need to remember that. You cannot take it with you. Live like you're, like, this is... Plan like Jesus is not going to come back for a thousand years. Go to school, buy a house, get married, not be married, have kids, not have kids. Plan a career, plan for retirement. Because we don't know when he's returning, right? It doesn't say. There's not like a date stamped in there somewhere. But live like he's coming back tomorrow. And you can do both simultaneously. You can prep like we don't know when he's coming. But I can live with the intention that he's going to be coming back tomorrow. And keep that in front of you. Secondly, meditate on eternal perspective texts. The one that we've been looking at is perfect. I use it all the time. I've talked to God. I've quoted it back to him probably 200 times. And he's and I've reminded myself of it. 
Some of my favorites, Psalm 90:12. Moses is praying. He says, Lord, teach me to number my days and I may present to you a heart of wisdom. This is Moses, right? The guy who's on the mountain with God for 40 days. And he says, help me to remember that my life's short. Teach me to number my days that I may present to you so that when I die, all I have to give you is a heart full of you. David in Psalm 39 says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Make me to know my end and extent of my days. There's nothing in our culture that, that talks about, we don't like death. We cover it up. We try to make it last, our lives last longer. He says, remind me. Make me to know my end and extend my, let me know how transient I, I am. For behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, short, and my lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Not that we're not nothing, but that our existence is nothing in comparison to eternity. 70, 80, 90 years, maybe 100, 130 for Jacob. But in terms of eternity, it is a drop in the ocean. Surely every man at his, at his best is a mere breath. I don't care how studly you are, how much exercise you get, right kind of diet. I'm not knocking that stuff. I use a treadmill, been doing it for 23 years, drive, walk, run 16 miles a week so that I hopefully won't have heart disease when I'm 75. But at the end of the day, at his best is a mere breath. You, you know, you're going to die, and you need to think about that. You need to realize that, okay? So, uh, third, Give of your resources. And Tim alluded to this. And there's nothing better than giving to turn your heart towards God's purposes. Randy Elkhorn says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. In Matthew uh, 6, Jesus in 20 through 22, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. So he's talking about money, really. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. You can take that quarter. I can take this and make it last forever. It will never rot or destroy because it can go to something that is, that is eternal. Then catch the last part of the verse. He says, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Notice the linkage. He doesn't say, when your heart's ready, give. No, he says, when you give, your heart will follow your treasure. Not the other way around. So I look at the promises of God that he says that if I give to his kingdom and to his purposes, I am storing up for myself a treasure house of eternal consequence. I don't see it right now, and you won't, but I'm going to give to it. And as I give, guess what? Over time, my heart begins to go, this is the best thing there is. I can't, I can't wait to opportunities. I'm looking for ways to bless others and to pour into the kingdom. In Matthew 25, he tells the parable of the king who goes on a journey. You know, the well-known talents, five, two, and one. He gives one guy five, one guy two, one guy one. And he comes back from his journey. And he says, well, what'd you do with it? And the guy goes, I took your five and I made five more. He goes, high five, yes. And then catch what he says. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done. Is there any better words to hear from the lips of God when you die and go to stand before him? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then gets this. He says, enter into the joy of your master. 
We get to partake of the, triteri- tri- the Trinitarian joy. The love and the joy and the excitement the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father and the Holy Spirit has for the Son and the Holy Spirit has for the Father. And all they have for each other, he says, enter into that joy. That's our promise. And there's something about the more we commit to his eternal purposes, the more we get to experience that eternal joy. And all the sorrows and the pains and the frustrations and the doubts and the unbeliefs and the struggles and the hurts and of this life, you're going to get sucked up into that. You're going to not get care a flip. It won't matter squat. Why? Because we're filled with the joy of Christ. It's forever. It never goes away. It never tapers off. It never squanders. It's awesome. What a promise. Why would we not want to do that? Why would we... There's a story, it's, uh, this guy dies, he's a rich Christian, he goes to heaven, and he's standing there at the, at the pearly gates, and, Peter, and, and he wants to bring some stuff, and Peter looks at him and says, you know you can't bring anything, and he goes, oh, yeah, but I always said, no, you can't bring it. So they negotiate back and forth, and Peter says, okay, finally, you can bring one suitcase. So the guy goes back, comes back to earth, he packs his suitcase, he comes back the next day, he stands at the pearly gates, and Peter says, okay, open it up, and he opens it up, and it's packed full of gold, and Peter looks at him and says, you brought pavement? You ever wonder how Peter got that gig? I, you know, why, is he at, he's, why he got the pearly gates thing? We need, to take, we need to take our joy in the Lord seriously. You need to be serious about your joy in the Lord. Make it an issue. I want to be happy in God, and the way that I do that is by looking at him and what he's, what he's going to do. And then finally, invest in people. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul does something here that is so counterintuitive to what we think of in terms of our relationship with Christ. And, and as far as I can tell, he's, John does this a little bit. But this is really, because he saw something. Remember, he got taken up into heaven. So he got like an end time picture of what's, what's coming. He saw Christ in his glory up in the heavens. So he saw the end game. And he comes back. He doesn't really talk about it too much. But once in a while, something slips through. And at the end of chapter 2, I'm going to, again, we're breaking in the middle of a section here. Well, starting verse 17, he says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. Now catch this. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? You're expecting him to say Jesus right here, right? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. He's talking about believers. He's looking at him and says, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be standing with all my bros and sisters, all these people that I influenced and brought into the kingdom, that I influenced in some way in their walk with Christ, and they are going to be part of my joy and delight in being here. Now, Paul, Paul cheats because he like wrote half the New Testament and he's got 2,000 years of collection. You know, so he's going to have like a really big room. <laughs> the only things you can take with you into heaven are Jesus and your relationship with him and people. Everything else is going to get gritted out. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose.